Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. You're listening to a new episode of Stories from Space Podcast, where your host, Matthew Williams, examines the history of human spaceflight, the breakthroughs that revolutionized our understanding of the universe and our place in it, and the brave individuals who work tirelessly to advance the frontiers of our understanding. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. The authors acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the traditional unceded lands of the Lekwungen peoples. Hello, and welcome back to Stories from Space. I'm your host, Matt Williams. And today I want to continue in our new segment of Settling the Solar System. In our last installment, we talked about how humans could settle Earth's nearest celestial neighbor, the Moon, and create the first population of Lunites, or Loonies. Many names have been suggested for future lunar settlers. And today, we're going to look at what strategies, technologies, methods, etc., are necessary for humans to establish a permanent foothold on Mars. This is the next logical place to look beyond the Earth-Moon system, because even though Mars is not technically the closest planet to Earth that goes to Venus, it is nevertheless the most habitable planet in the solar system, beyond Earth. It's also for this very reason why all of our astrobiology efforts are currently focused there, because scientists have long considered Mars to be the most likely place to find extraterrestrial life. In recent years, that's been challenged somewhat by proponents of ocean worlds and the icy moons that have interior oceans, but that's another topic for another day. Mars is also where human exploration efforts are tightly focused, Beyond returning to the moon, beyond the Artemis program and China's plan for the International Lunar Research Station, all proposed crewed missions for the foreseeable future are directed towards Mars. How we could establish a cadence of robotic and human missions that would explore the surface, looking for signs of past or even present life, and establishing habitats that would allow for return trips, and all the infrastructure that we would need, not only on the Martian surface, but in between here and Mars, to allow for that. And that, of course, includes refueling stations, so that missions are not overburdened by the propellant mass, which makes up the majority of most missions today. Now, much like establishing a human outpost on the moon, or a permanent settlement on the moon, Establishing the first Martian settlements is a major challenge, but it's one that mission planners, advocates, enthusiasts, scientists, and the general public, it's one that they've never shied away from, because the potential benefits and the types of scientific research that permanent settlements on Mars would enable, they are considerable, and... The idea of establishing a foothold on Mars is also a vital part of plans for becoming interplanetary, for establishing humanity as a stellar civilization rather than just a planetary one, and for creating a post-scarcity economy and everything that entails, achieving the accelerando of human development. So the question that I want to explore today is, Specifically, what are the challenges, can they be overcome, and how, 
And how would this lead to a long-term vision where Mars becomes an outpost of human civilization and the first Martians, assuming that all life on Mars ceased to exist a long time ago, how the very first Martians would be created? In other words, human beings born and raised on Mars. So to break it down succinctly, the challenge of placing humans on the red planet, it comes down to the orbital mechanics and the distances involved between Earth and Mars, the hazards of sending crews on a what is likely to be a multi-month voyage to another planet, which include exposure to microgravity and radiation, the hazards that exist on the surface of the planet, which also include radiation, lower gravity, the occasional impacts on the surface, Mars's thin atmosphere, a lack of a magnetosphere, and the fact that the atmosphere is toxic to humans and other animals. And, of course, the extreme temperature variations and dust storms that sometimes become planetary in scale. So let's break these down one by one. First off, the orbital mechanics of Mars and Earth. As the fourth planet of the solar system beyond Earth's own orbit, Mars has a longer orbital period, 687 days, almost twice that of Earth. And this means that at times, Mars will be on the opposite side of the Sun, and this is known as a conjunction, where Mars and Earth are on the same side in the sky, whereas when Mars and the Sun are on opposite sides of Earth, which is to say that Earth and Mars are at their closest point in their orbit, this is known as an opposition. So oppositions occur once every 26 months. So during an opposition, Mars is typically around 55 million kilometers away, or 34 million miles, whereas at a conjunction, when they're at their farthest, Mars will be over 400 million kilometers away, or 250 million miles. So a considerable difference. So as a result of this, missions to Mars, using current and foreseeable propulsion technology, they would be forced to launch every 26 months, and using current technology, it could take as long as six to nine months. So this would mean that any mission sent would be on their own, largely. They would not have the luxury, the option of resupply missions that can be mounted in a matter of hours, as is the case with the International Space Station or anything else in low Earth orbit, or a matter of days, which is the case with the Moon. So this has a very serious effect on mission planning. And a six to nine month voyage also means that the spacecraft that would be transporting the astronauts and crew, it is going to need a lot of supplies or a method for growing food and also disposing of waste in a way that is sustainable and closed loop. Preferably no waste is generated, but most likely we will have to settle for a system where a minimum amount of waste is created and then has to be disposed of in a number of ways. The crew is also going to need plenty of physical activity in order to maintain their bone density and musculature so that they can arrive on Mars healthy and strong enough to conduct operations on the surface. And there's also innumerable problems or hazards of having people in a relatively confined spacecraft together for extended periods of time. 
And the spacecraft is also going to require some significant radiation shielding to protect against long-term exposure to not only solar radiation, but also cosmic rays, which present an even bigger risk. Partly because, even with radiation shielding, these particles will strike a solid surface and create cascades, showers of secondary particles, that then flood the interior of the ship. And this can create its own radiation threat for the crew. And while none of these hazards are lethal in nature, there's no real danger of astronauts dying of radiation poisoning in transit, this increased exposure will elevate their risk of developing cancers. And so if we intend to become a spacefaring civilization with people living on another planet where the radiation is higher, this is obviously something we need to account for and mitigate. Now, there are many ways of doing this, some of which involve having more elaborate shielding for spacecraft. Simply having conventional metallic shielding, like they do in the ISS, there have been suggestions to use plumbing, basically to let water recycling happen within the walls so they help prevent secondary particles from showering the crew. Another idea that was suggested for the Inspiration Mars mission was to have other types of plumbing going on in the walls, mainly excrement and crew waste, because this too would shield them from particles and honestly was an innovative idea. Nevertheless, the smart money right now is simply making the transits take less time. And this is something that NASA has been investigating at length for its proposed missions to Mars, which are supposed to begin in 2033. The most obvious technology that could help make transits shorter are nuclear rockets, so spacecraft that rely on propulsion systems that are either nuclear electric or nuclear thermal. So instead of combining liquid hydrogen, liquid oxygen, and igniting it as a means of propulsion, instead of ion thrusters that magnetize inert gas, you'd have a nuclear reactor that is either heating your propellant, in this case heavy hydrogen or deuterium, and then converting that into thrust, or the nuclear reactor would be powering the propulsion system, which would likely again be a form of an ion thruster, but which would be capable of generating greater propulsion. So far, some of the proposed methods there for nuclear propulsion, the researchers behind them have indicated that they could generate speeds that would reduce transit times to as little as 45 days or as much as 100 Either of these time frames, even the slowest one of 100 days, a little over three months, is a vast improvement over six to nine months. And 45 days, just a month and a half, is exceptional. We could send crews to Mars and get them back without having to rely on the planet being in opposition again before the crew return. It's also recommended that the spacecraft have a sun shield for when it's operating within one astronomical unit of the sun, so closer to the sun than Earth currently orbits. Now, that's a solution for what to do while the crews are in transit. As to what they are going to do for radiation protection once they get to Mars, that again brings up the issue of in-situ resource utilization. And similar to what's been proposed for the moon, the best ideas are that you would bring along inflatable structures or some kind of base shell, or even that the spacecraft itself could be disassembled and used as basic parts to build a habitat, and that you then cover these with a sufficient amount of Martian soil, or Martian regolith, 
or that the regolith itself be used by 3D printers to create an outer structure. So as we discussed last time, there's two ways to go about doing that. You either take the local regolith and you mix it with a bonding agent and make a local form of concrete, or you use sintering technology where you bombard the silicate minerals in the soil with microwaves and that turns it into a molten ceramic, which you then print out on the surface and it hardens on contact with the atmosphere. And that provides the outer shell of the structure and then either the inflatable or rigid frame that you've brought along with you. That is what serves as the interior structure and the pressurized volume. And then you build your base outwards from there. And astronauts on the surface of Mars, for the sake of research and long-duration stays, they would need a greenhouse, because they would need to grow much of their own food, a vehicle building for surface operations, and a research lab to conduct their experiments. And since we're talking about living long-term, then the idea is to build up the surface habitat to the point where it can not only endure on the surface of Mars for long periods of time and offer protection against the elements, but which also constitutes a closed-loop system where nothing goes to waste. So the air needs to be recycled, water needs to be recycled, food waste needs to be turned into fertilizer, and human waste also needs to be used as fertilizer. So what you're envisioning at this point is a habitat that is airtight, pressurized, has a bioregenerative life support system. So it would rely on algae or cyanobacteria or any number of things that are capable of cleaning the air and even producing food. There are many forms of edible algae, which not only are photosynthetic, so they take in carbon dioxide, but they are highly edible, very nutritious. And again, a lot of proposals have been made for this. And NASA, for one, has done extensive research on how greenhouses could be developed for both lunar missions and Mars missions, where there's long-duration stays and the need for sustainability is particularly great. They've also developed what was known as the Mars Ecopoiesis Testbed, which was a concept for testing to see how terrestrial life forms would survive in the Martian environment, part of long-term planning to see if humans and Earth-based life can live there someday. But there are also many research institutes and nonprofits and companies that are also researching this kind of technology to build closed-loop systems that would enable humanity's future in space. There's also the Biosphere 2 experiment conducted in the early 90s, and its successor, the SAM-2, or SAM squared, which stands for the Space Analog for the Moon and Mars experiment that is using much of the same facility to conduct updated experiments. And as mentioned, you've got research groups and companies, not the least of which is Deep Space Ecology and Mars City Design. And, of course, the Mars Society. All of these groups have come up with proposals and ideas for long-duration surface habitats or even permanent habitats that would rely on everything we know about Earth ecology and recreating living systems, biomes, inside the base that would ensure that humans have everything they need in terms of food, water, and breathable air, and energy, and are, as much as possible, self-sufficient, so they don't have to receive supplies or building materials from Earth, because... 
Even with nuclear propulsion systems that would significantly reduce the travel times, Mars would still be too far away to rely on ships coming with the necessary supplies. Even more so than the moon, the settlers need to be able to look after their own needs using the local resources. So that's the very core of in-situ resource utilization, sustainable self-sufficiency. And then there are the temperature extremes. So you may have heard that Mars actually, periodically, parts of it will actually be warmer than Earth. And this has certainly been the case when around the equator, when Mars was in the summertime and at midday, temperatures could get as high as 30 degrees Celsius. But that's just on the surface. And by that, I mean the soil itself and about one inch above it. Anything above that, because of the thin atmosphere, heat is very poorly retained. So it'll become icy cold just a few inches from the surface and then a few feet more it becomes cryogenically cold. So human beings standing out without a spacesuit would basically freeze from their ankles up. And in terms of the overall variations, so throughout the course of the year, Mars will experience an average of about minus 63 degrees Celsius or minus 81 degrees Fahrenheit. Now that is extremely cold. However, that represents the average in terms of the full range, Mars will reach a low of minus 110 degrees Celsius and a high of 35 degrees Celsius. But as I said, that's surface temperature alone. In Fahrenheit, that's minus 166 degrees Fahrenheit and a high of 95 degrees Fahrenheit. So throughout the year and throughout even a single day, the temperature will vary extensively. As a result, any habitats built on the surface are going to have to be heavily insulated either by giving them very thick, very insular walls, or building them underground. In addition, anyone venturing out on the surface is either going to have to be in a pressurized spacesuit with a good degree of thermal insulation, and or a vehicle with the same kind of protections. And last but not least, we've got the issue of gravity. Now, microgravity, which is what astronauts experience in space, it's what we've done extensive research with using the International Space Station. We know that exposure to that over long periods of time, it takes a significant toll on the human body. And a very, very good example, we've seen countless astronauts coming back from the ISS and they needed help getting out of their spacecraft. They needed wheelchairs in order to simply make it away from the launch facility. But reacclimating to Earth gravity over the long term, it's really quite challenging. And the perfect example of this is the NASA twin study where identical twins, Scott Kelly and Mark Kelly, who were both NASA astronauts, Scott Kelly spent over a year on the ISS, whereas Mark Kelly, he remained on Earth, and this allowed for a sort of baseline comparison. NASA and other space agencies at this point, they already knew that spending a lot of time in microgravity, it caused muscle loss, bone density loss, and there were clear effects on astronaut vision and health and organ function. But the problem was they had no way of separating what would have occurred naturally over the course of the year. And what was the direct result of the microgravity? So, Mark and Scott Kelly being of identical DNA, this now presented a basis for full-on comparison. And the results were presented in the NASA Twin Study Report. And Scott Kelly also spoke about the, the more personal aspects of it extensively in his book titled Endurance. 
And the picture these painted were really quite grim, and they indicated that in addition to muscle and bone density loss, impacts on cardiovascular function, organ function, and diminished eyesight, there were also effects to the central nervous system and in gene expression. Scott Kelly had to go through all kinds of terrible pain and swelling and headaches and sleep disturbances and mood fluctuations when he came back to Earth. So the effects are not confined to any one part of the body, and they're certainly not confined to just physical effects. They're very much psychological. But there's also some good news in there, which showed that with the right kind of precautions and health regimen that the astronauts follow, and assuming the person is healthy in mind and body, that they can be very resilient, that their physiology and their cardiovascular and endocrine systems and nervous system, they will be able to endure this kind of environment, microgravity, for extended periods of time, but not indefinitely. So much like establishing a human presence in low Earth orbit or on the moon, we need long-term solutions for Martian gravity. Getting to Mars will mean that for the entire transit period, astronauts will be in microgravity. So if we can reduce that to just 45 to 100 days, that will obviously be a very good step. And any spacecraft that are sent towards Mars, they're going to need to be equipped with exercise facilities like the ISS so that astronauts can maintain optimal health. And nutrition is also going to be a factor, and so are supplements, in particular things that help maintain electrolyte balance, the body's microbiome. All of that is going to be needed to ensure that astronauts and later possible settlers will be in optimal health while they make the journey. But given that we're also talking about long term, it would be possible in the future for transit craft to have rotating sections or a rotating torus, such as NASA has proposed with its Nautilus X concept. So you have a torus-shaped segment that you can mount on a spaceship or a space station. They had an experiment that was going to be headed to the ISS, and this would rotate in space to simulate artificial gravity. And given the size constraints, it's likely that this would be restricted to generating only a partial gravity, and although they could theoretically generate gravity that is consistent with Martian gravity, so people in transit to Mars would be able to acclimate to Martian gravity as they're going, and even a limited amount of simulated gravity would be vastly preferable to microgravity. Once they arrive on Mars... That exercise regiment and health regiment is going to have to continue. But there will need to be some long-term safeguards. Now, even though Mars has more favorable gravity than the Moon, which is roughly 16% of Earth normal, and far more favorable than microgravity, it's still less than half of what we are used to here on Earth. In fact, it's roughly 38%, so a little more than a third. So the long-term effects of that are likely to be similar to microgravity, just distributed over a much longer period. So again, this is going to require either a creative use of centrifuges or more likely a spinning pinwheel station in orbit that human beings can retire to periodically to get their gravity therapy and most likely where expecting mothers will need to be for the sake of fetal development of their child and possibly during maternity. And of course, living long term, 
There's also the issue of how we are going to deal with livestock or any animals that we intend to bring along with us. Unless the Martian diet is strictly vegan, then we're going to need to figure out what to do about all the chickens, pigs, cows, whatever animals we bring along. We need to figure out exactly what the effects of this lower gravity are on them and how to mitigate that. And that research has not yet been done because simply hasn't been possible. But again, the option of having pinwheel stations. I mean, pinwheel stations in orbit around Earth that can simulate Martian gravity would allow for studies into human physiology and human health and also animal health on Mars. And while medical treatments or procedures may be available in the future that actually address this at the genetic level, where human beings can actually be genetically modified and animals, so that they can function perfectly normally and thrive in lower gravity environments. We can't wait on those to happen before coming up with solutions. We need to deal with what's in front of us right now using existing technology and stuff we know works. So having addressed all the challenges and some of the more likely solutions for near-term and long-term habitation, it would be good now to mention the benefits. What are the benefits of establishing a human outpost on Mars? And as mentioned earlier, the most obvious are, one, the potential for astrobiological research, and two, the fact that a settlement on Mars would be key to human migrations off-world and into space, the creation of an interplanetary civilization, post-scarcity economy, etc., etc., and to get into that in a little more detail, Mars is, as far as we know, the most habitable planet beyond Earth in the solar system and the most likely place to find life, evidence of past life or even present life today. And whatever we happen to find, it's going to greatly increase our knowledge about the history and evolution of our solar system and how things like water and the basic building blocks of life were distributed throughout the solar system way back in its history, a little over 4 billion years ago. So we may find evidence of past life that shows that life on Earth and Mars are related, that the building blocks were delivered from either beyond the inner solar system, say somewhere out in the uh, Kuiper Belt, or even from interstellar space. We may find also that life on Earth began as a result of life on Mars, that it began there in Earth quicker, that it was then distributed to Earth via rocks that were ejected from bombardments. And who knows? We may even find that life still exists on Mars today, deep underground, most likely, and most likely in the form of microbes that live in briny patches of salt water. Much of the theoretical work on this indicates that much like Mars's surface water, life may have retreated underground when the planet began losing its atmosphere and began making the transition to the extremely cold, desiccated, irradiated place we see, on the surface anyway, today. And these findings, this will allow us to do direct comparisons between life as it once existed and still does exist on Mars and life on Earth, and this will create tremendous implications for actually settling there. Ethical considerations such as, how do we do this without disturbing the life? Can we do this without disturbing the life? And all major, major questions, which will no doubt come up as we get closer to establishing a foothold on Mars. 
Either way, the implications of this for our understanding for science would be profound. Extending humanity beyond Earth and the Earth-Moon system would also result in countless technological innovation. To quote Dr. Cyan Proctor, as I often do in these cases, solving for space solves for Earth. All of the systems that we are currently researching to establish habitats out there in space, the Moon, Mars, and floating habitats in orbit, or Lagrange points, all of this comes down to technologies that ensure for sustainability and zero waste and recreating Earth's own biomes out there in space, taking Earth with us. And that research, that is going to have spin-offs that are going to be absolutely invaluable here on Earth, where now more than ever we need to leverage technologies and methods that take into account how Earth systems work and understanding that balance in order to achieve sustainable development. We're dealing with a climate crisis here, and as humans migrate off into space, that's going to continue. So the benefits are that, on the one hand, moving out into space is going to lessen the population burden here on Earth. There's the possibility for resource extraction. Mars is rich in minerals and rare earth metals and also deuterium. From what we understand, heavy hydrogen is more prevalent there on the surface than here on Earth. So that means that we will also be able to relocate industry off-world, so lessening the manufacturing and mining burdens that we place on Earth's environment. And the technology we come up with to ensure humans can live off-world, that is going to have immense benefits and applications here at home. And of course, having a base on Mars, establishing infrastructure there on Mars, on the surface, in orbit, having a population there... This will allow for further ventures out into the solar system, including the main asteroid belt, which could very well become the future of mining and manufacturing for human civilization, to the outer solar system and its incredible caches of resource and research potential, which include astrobiology, as I mentioned, ocean worlds and icy moons with interior oceans. So, as Robert Zubrin has said when addressing his book, The Case for Mars, Mars is where the research is, where the challenge is, and where the future is. So, yes, it has the potential for immense scientific research. The challenge is all about establishing a new frontier and testing our abilities and measuring ourselves, and also the potential for technological outgrowth that this will create and in terms of the future, for the future of the human race, for its continued growth and survival. And that includes existential risks to humanity. It's often been cited that having a base on Mars would mean that humanity would survive any calamity here on Earth because it's got outposts elsewhere, or a backup location, if you will. So, to raise the question then, can this be done? Can human beings settle on Mars and effectively create the first Martians? And the answer is yes. It's just a question of, once again, how much are you willing to spend, how long are you willing to wait, and what kind of commitments are we prepared to make over multiple generations? Because establishing a human foothold on Mars would be a multi-generational commitment. It's not something we could expect to do today, tomorrow, or within the immediate future. But it is conceivable that with all the right strategies and some technological innovations, which are within reach, that human beings could begin establishing a regular presence on Mars by 
just after mid-century. So the timetables that I mentioned last time there, that we could have a functioning settlement on the moon by mid-century, that this would help enable missions to Mars and settlement opportunities there somewhere around the mid-century mark. Now, of course, timetables like this are always subject to revision, and they're basically the stuff of educated guesses. And there are many plans to establish a thriving, self-sustaining city there before mid-century, case in point, Elon Musk. And he's always been known to be optimistic with timetables, but who knows? It's possible that parallel development could happen with lunar settlement and Martian settlement, it would all depend on the future budget environment, the amount of capital we're willing to throw at it, and also, of course, the number of volunteers. But as Mars One demonstrated, there's no shortage of people who are willing to sign up for a one-way trip to Mars, knowing that they would be part of this effort to expand human civilization to the Red Planet. So in terms of what this could look like, which is, again, the stuff of educated guesses and assuming technological developments keep pace over the next few decades, then it's entirely possible that the first missions to Mars, with the intent of settling it, that these will happen yes, after exploration missions have gone there, after they have demonstrated that enduring habitats can be established on the surface and revisited by later missions, it is entirely possible that human beings will begin to sign up for one-way trips and Elon Musk hopes to do this with a fleet of starships. It seems more likely, in my own opinion, that this will be something that is performed as a result of both government and private industry cooperating on this sort of thing, and there will also have to be a very strong amount of international cooperation as well. So, the first settlers will likely be establishing a foothold on Mars, as mentioned, using components, rigid structures, or inflatable structures that are brought along with them aboard their spacecraft, or as part of their spacecraft, that they are protected by 3D-printed, sintered outer shells, and that these would be built on the surface, with all the necessary facilities and technology that would ensure self-sufficiency, or at least to a very strong degree. There would still be resupply missions and more people arriving on a regular basis, most likely every 26 months until the propulsion technology becomes more sophisticated. And that as the technology becomes more sophisticated, the process will accelerate. And whereas the first generation of people on Mars will live in these surface habitats, they will work to build a more permanent facility, either still on the surface and using various strategies to protect against the radiation, or possibly built underground. Much like on the moon, there are stable lava tubes on Mars we can take advantage of. There's also caves, especially around the Tharsis Plateau, the old volcanic region there that produced the Tharsis mountain chain, and, of course, Olympus Mons, the largest mountain in the solar system. This contains several caves that are the result of lava tubes. These could be the site of a, a future city. That it's, there's The volume is enough to contain a city large enough to accommodate hundreds of thousands of people. And by the third generation, it is likely that permanent settlements will be built on the surface likely in large domes that use all manner of methods for generating energy, solar and wind, fusion power, say in tokamak reactors, 
which the local deuterium supply will help keep fueled, and that the first Martians, people born on this planet, they'll now be entering adulthood, and that Mars itself will likely have an economy based on the export of minerals, fabricated products, everything from Martian bricks and ceramics, to machine parts and full-fledged machines formed in foundries there, and even a thriving tourist economy. And one thing that is very exciting that has been proposed as a legitimate idea is that Mars, given its lower gravity, could also facilitate a space elevator. So basically, a megastructure where you have a station in orbit with a large counterweight, like an asteroid, towed to that position. And down from that, you have this long spindle composed of graphene, and it's attached right into the bedrock of the planet, and, and elevator cars are going up and down this spindle on a daily basis, or however often they're, they're needed, in order to transport crew and cargo to and from the planet. And Mars already has the benefit of cheaper launch costs, because if you're launching from Mars, you really only need to generate little over 5 kilometers a second, which is less than half of the escape velocity needed to break free of Earth's gravity. So consistent with its level of gravity there, it's about 40%. So that already would offer savings on rocket launches, but the bonus of having a space elevator, tensile strength of the spindle or tether or thread, whatever you want to call it, it doesn't need to be nearly as strong as what we need for Earth. So this too would enable all kinds of tourism and all kinds of exports and imports and so, Mars could become a potential hub for human civilization. At this point, it wouldn't need to be self-sufficient anymore. It would actually likely be a major exporter of raw materials and manufactured goods and intellectual property as well. Because, of course, one of the most appealing aspects of establishing an outpost of civilization on Mars is the young generation would be raised in an entirely new environment, an entirely new education system could be built from the ground up, and that future intellectuals, musicians, composers, artists, etc., they would be coming from Mars and offering new perspectives, and new ideas. People who have lived through the challenge of trying to live, thrive, and survive on a world where there is a very small margin for failure, they would no doubt have some very, very keen insights and ideas. And, as I said before, a large settlement established on Mars, complete with a space elevator and its own economy, this would serve as a very crucial stopover point for missions bound for the outer solar system. It would be another point where missions could refuel and thus not have to bring a whole bunch of propellant with them. And we would be scaling up our exploration efforts and our economies in space exponentially. The notion that we would now have enough materials that scarcity was a thing of the past would be possible. And the entire nature of wealth, the kinds of socioeconomic effects this would have would be incredibly profound. Wealth would basically be eliminated, and with it, wealth disparity. However, that's a subject for another time. And speaking of which, so is the prospect of terraforming Mars. Now that is a plan to make Mars fully habitable for an indefinite period of time. And there are many ways to do that, which will be the subject of later episodes. 
So to finish, I'd like to address the question, is this worth it? The expenditure in terms of capital, the risks, the danger, all the hazards that have been outlined by countless studies and critics and speculative thinkers, and of course the fact that this would need to be a multi-generational commitment. Is this worth it? It's not something we can really answer today. Opinions vary, of course. People can cite the benefits and the risks ad nauseum. But the truth is, whether or not humanity establishes an outpost of its civilization on Mars is a question that's going to be addressed by later generations as we get closer and closer to the point where we can actually do it conceivably within the immediate future, then that is going to be the point in which we answer that question. And only after generations of trying and depending on their success, will people really have any kind of idea as to whether or not this was worth our time as a species. And of course, another thing which we will have to explore as that possibility draws nearer, and hopefully we're better informed when it comes time to make this decision, is if there is still indigenous life on Mars, even if it's underground in briny patches and we won't be able to access it or get at it or harm it when we first arrive, which is a very lovely idea. It would be good to know that we could actually put boots on the ground and not endanger the local life forms. But will this affect our decision to live there long term? Because the longer we're there, the greater the potential that we will infect this life, these biomes, and destroy them through our mere presence. In addition, it is entirely possible that they could do the same to us we could end up contracting infections and diseases that we have no known cure for or can even really anticipate or diagnose. And this is something NASA is concerned about with regards to sample return missions from Mars. If there is evidence of life there in the form of living microbes, then yeah, having them near human beings could be very dangerous. So safety and, of course, ethical planetary protection questions, those are going to become so much more relevant when it comes time to decide whether to send settlers to Mars or not. The fact that we can't make these decisions right now, that is a source of both relief and disappointment, I would imagine, for many people, myself included. Nevertheless, there are many things that we need to focus on right now because... As I've said many times now, we need to focus on what's in front of us, and right now that's preparing to send people back to the moon, sending them onto Mars, figuring out the timetable, addressing all the technological and human health and safety and planetary protection hazards, and being ready to go when, in fact, all this planning and all these technologies mature. So, this has been the second installment in the segment of Settling the Solar System. In our next episode, we will look at how we could establish settlements on Venus. Now, that is a particularly challenging proposal, but once again, it spawns all kinds of very creative and innovative thoughts and proposals, and we're going to look at as much of that as we possibly can. Thank you for joining me. I'm Matt Williams, and this has been Stories from Space. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Stories from Space podcast with Matthew Williams. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, 
Then share ITSPMagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.